The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Do you ever wonder what brings you to consume the very content in which you find yourself listening to at this very moment? Sure, we've asked that question before, but have you ever really sat down and thought about it? Is it a general morbid curiosity, or perhaps a casual way to cope with the idea of our own mortality? The constant theme of death surrounding the material we immerse ourselves in here at Invisible Choir is as frightening as it is informative. It never ceases to amaze us how the human mind works. The fact that at any given moment, our very existence could be drastically altered forever. When you learn of just how many of these cases there are, many of them occurring in our own backyards even, slowly the realization sets in that these horrible tragedies are not as far removed from our lives as we'd like to think they might be. As we often see, Family members of the victims are regularly viewed as the number one suspects in these crimes. On the other hand, sometimes family can be your only hope in revealing the truth. But what happens when a crime is overlooked, an investigation is botched, and a local police department fails to do its job? When these entrusted systems essentially break down, who then do we turn to? This is a story about a family that refused to wait around and find out, eventually taking matters into their own hands. What is it they say? If you want something done right, do it yourself. Well, today's case proves that old adage true, even when it comes to solving a murder. Davison, Michigan, this small city in Genesee County, just outside of Flint, is home to just over 5,000 residents. Frankly, not much goes on here. At the time of creating this episode, the Davison City Police Department only has 10 sworn-in police officers. This may sound a bit concerning for a place just outside of Flint, yet after discovering the entire city only stretches a total of 1.9 square miles... Perhaps the size of their staff becomes a more acceptable concept. One family that eventually moved to this unassuming part of the Midwest were best friends and close sisters, Katrina, Patricia, and Christina. My name is Katrina Sharon. I am the middle sister and I am a mortgage auditor. I'm Patricia Hutchinson. I'm a mechanical engineer and mom of two. And the baby sister, yes, I'm the baby sister. The three have been virtually inseparable for as long as any of them can remember. Patricia being the youngest, Katrina the middle child, and Christina the eldest. We were raised that girls can do anything boys can do. And we were raised by a very strong mother who always spoke her mind. We are strong women and Christy was equally as such. Christina's father tragically died when she was very young, but the death in the family only brought them all closer together. She actually has a different birth father, I guess you'd say. He passed away of leukemia when she was 18 months old, but Patricia and I share the same dad and our parents have been married for 40 years. So the only dad Christy was raised by was really our dad. Their childhood was fairly unique. As mom, dad, and the three girls moved constantly due to their father's job. And with that environmental instability came an unbreakable bond between them. We moved five states in 10 years for the first 10 years of my life. And a lot of times, because we were so young, the only friends we had to play with were each other. 
we were very close and have maintained that throughout. As latchkey kids growing up in the 1980s, the girls were mostly left to entertain themselves, with Christina most of the time watching over her younger siblings. Christy, because she was so much older than us, ended up being our babysitter for a lot of it because my mom was working on her college degree and my dad with work was traveling a lot. So we spent a lot of time at home, the three of us. We were movie buffs. We'd put in Pretty Woman, put it in the VCR. When it was done, we'd hit rewind, go grab a snack, come back and hit play again and watch the movie all over again. We actually wore through the Drop Dead Fred video. (laughs) VHS tapes, snacks, and riding around in the family Chevy Astro van. Simpler times. Most of us can certainly relate to some extent. Even among their parents' hectic schedules and trying to provide for their children, their mother and father always made sure to dedicate every Sunday for family time. Sunday, you were not allowed to call your friends. So Sunday was like the rest day. You couldn't make any phone calls. So it was a family day. After moving from state to state, the family finally settled down in Davison, Michigan in 1993. They were all happy to have a sense of groundedness in a community for the first time. The three girls eventually all grew into successful young women, starting families of their own. While they fell into quite different career fields, they all shared a common trait, that had been ingrained in them since their youth. A strong work ethic. I mean, some people aren't destined for college. She wasn't built for college. So the route she took was different, but she was successful. Right. Back in 2014, Christina had been promoted to manager at the Subway Sandwich Shop located in Ascension Genesis Hospital, which just so happens to be the busiest branch in all of Genesee County. The most recent was she was working at Subway as a general manager. She had just won manager of the year, too. So She was very well organized, and people liked working with her. But long before all of this, Christina would meet a man by the name of Jason Harris. Jason wasn't very ambitious by any stretch, but after meeting Christina, he seemed to find motivation and eventually a long-lasting career. Jason became employed at United Plastics, eventually becoming a foreman and staying with the company for well over 15 years. The two dated for quite some time and in due course would eventually marry. Christy and him were together for roughly five years before they got married. So they got married in 2003, but I personally believe that for their whole time together that it was a step down, like she settled. Both Katrina and Patricia believed that Christina was very self-conscious and that she was afraid to risk losing her, quote, safe romantic relationship with Jason, or something potentially more fulfilling. While everything seemed fine and there were no signs of this being a bad relationship, it was just average, and they wanted more for their older sister. She didn't think as much of herself to think she could get something better. But he stuck around, he stayed, so it wasn't something that we were going to stand up when she was getting married and say this shouldn't happen, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they would go to OzFest, and I mean, they had things that they liked that were in common. So, I mean, in that regard, yes, she was happy, at least initially. He wasn't really a charismatic guy, so... It's not like... He was rough around the edges. (laughs) Yes, yes. Rough around the edges. Never really said much, but not a terrible guy by any means. As it often does for all of us, and far too quickly in fact, life went on for Jason and Christina, routinely. They eventually would have two babies, Haley and Kaylee Ann. But after nearly 16 years together, whatever spark there was to begin with, that slowly began to burn out. Christina eventually learned that Jason had been communicating with other women, and not at all in the manner that a married man should be. He was on his cell phone all the time, and she was up breastfeeding, and his phone was left out, and so she looked at it, and she found text messaging of other women, and to her that violated her marriage vows because of what the text messages were. 
And she spoke to my mom about it. She ended up speaking to me about it. When it came down to it, we knew it wasn't as happy in those few months since she had found out what he had been doing. He went from being rough to somebody who's not faithful. So that changes things. She ended up catching her husband on multiple occasions. It turns out he'd been texting his best friend Brad's girlfriend, Leah, who lived across state near Grand Rapids. Some friend. Brad and Leah were also acquaintances of Christina's. The messages were clearly sexual in nature, and it was evident to Christina that he had been having an affair. She gave him several chances, but nothing seemed to deter Jason from his desires of infidelity. He had a work cell phone and a personal, and she had actually taken them and cleared out all of the contacts on both phones, did factory restore on both phones, and it didn't stop. He just found the other means to reach back out to those people he was communicating with. Jason had been texting one woman for over two years since 2012, and Christina had only recently become aware of what was going on. The individual he had been communicating with was from Providence, Rhode Island. Jason had met her online, of all places on the popular mobile puzzle game, Words with Friends. But the way Christina ultimately found who Jason was texting was equally intriguing. After seeing the suggestive conversations and going through Jason's phones, she'd reported those numbers to her sister Katrina, and Katrina began investigating herself. Christy came to me with two phone numbers and two names that she had gotten off the contact list. And my mom said, Trina, can you figure out who these people are? And so I started looking up to see between the phone number and the name, could I find them on Facebook? Could I find them in white pages? Could I find, you know, link them together somehow? And I found the one living in the East Coast, but then I found um, Leah's name and I found on Facebook that it was connected to Brad. And when I brought that forward to Christy, she's like, like, that's Brad's girlfriend. Why is he texting her? See, Katrina wasn't just casually tech-savvy or someone carefully looking out for her sister. She had an extensive professional background in data research and digging up records online at her place of employment. I worked at a credit union. I worked there for 10 years. When you're dealing with elderly abuse cases and things like that, I had gotten subpoenas a couple of times. So I figured out how to look up stuff on the county public records. So I knew where you could find marriage certificates. And so I figured out how to utilize the public records that was available. So that helped in me looking up a lot of things. Katrina's past work experience here is crucial, and we'll explain why soon enough. As it stood, the two sisters knew now more than ever that Christina had to get out. She needed to leave Jason, but the uncertainty of just where she would go, with two little girls in tow, one of which was just four months old, was daunting, and ultimately kept her in the relationship. Until the morning of September 29, 2014 when Katrina and Patricia received a dreaded phone call, one that represents every family's worst nightmare. I was at the credit union. It was a Monday morning. My employees were like, "Some your dad's on the phone for you. And I'm like, I need to call him back. Just like, I'll call him back. And they said, well, he's called again. And I was like, okay. So I ended up taking the phone call and my dad told me I needed to come home. And I said, well, I can't just come home. I'm the only supervisor. You're going to have to tell me what's going on. And he ended up telling me that it was Christy. I was at work too. Uh, my dad called. I think it was probably closer to 11, 11.30 for me. And uh, he said, I need you to pack up your things and head to the house. And I said, what's going on? He said, I'll tell you when you get here. I mean, I had about, say, a 15-minute drive. So I'm thinking, you know, did something happen to one of the girls? You know, I had no idea. The sisters both rushed from their respective jobs to their father's house, anxiously asking themselves what the sudden emergency could possibly be. When they arrived, the news their father relayed to them simply didn't make any sense. I walked in through the garage and I stood in the doorway and he said, he told me, you know, Christy didn't wake up that morning. So that was just, that was hard. 
their sister Christina was only 36 years old and healthy and happy with two children. Besides the obvious shock that comes with such devastating news, Katrina and Patricia could not logically wrap their heads around how this could have happened. My head was going, it's four months postpartum. The likelihood of her having a complication is low. I was trying to think of anything medical that could have been wrong, and I just was coming up with nothing. So how do you just not wake up? That doesn't make sense to me. Their mother was already at Christina's house. Patricia and Katrina rushed to the residence where their sister had already been declared deceased. But even though they had just received the devastating news, the scene was already being cleared. There was one ambulance and one policeman on site. That's when we found out that we weren't allowed in the house. They were getting prepared to remove her body from the house, and they ended up opening the very front door. So all we witnessed was a gurney wrapped with a blanket being taken from the home. A small group of immediate family members from both sides gathered outside in front of the residence. Katrina and Patricia were looking for any sort of explanation. As soon as her body went into the ambulance, the ambulance ended up pulling away without lights on and the police officer drove away and Jason was allowed into the house immediately after. Right, because, I mean, the police were there and gone and nobody treated it as suspect. Once paramedics slowly drove off and out of the neighborhood, the sole officer on scene followed behind and that's when reality began to set in. Christina was, in fact, gone. But how? Katrina immediately confronted her sister's husband, Jason, with that question, in front of their family pastor, who was also present at the time. And I said, I I apologize, Father Andy, because I knew I was about to swear. And I looked at Jason and I said, how the F does this happen? And I was very blunt, matter of fact, and he just looked at me and shrugged. No emotion, no tears. And oddly, not a word. Perhaps he was just in as much shock as everyone else. The only details anyone seemed to have was that Christina simply passed away in her sleep. That was the only information they were given, and no further questions were asked by police. Her death was being treated as a terrible accident. But even from the very beginning, Christina's sisters weren't buying it. Before they could even begin processing the tragedy... Katrina was given the responsibility of informing her kindergartner niece that her mother was no longer alive. I ended up picking up Haley and taking her to the park and telling her, and she is such a smart kid. I I didn't know what words to say, like, how do you tell her this? I didn't know how she was going to react. And so I took her there because I knew there'd be like a picnic table or something, and I said that she wasn't going to get to see her mama anymore. And she told me, yes, I will, silly. I have pictures. And I was like, that's a four-year-old. She asked me how, like how that happened. And I said, well, she, she stopped breathing and you have to be able to breathe in order to be alive. And so because she stopped breathing, she, she grasped that and understood Haley then asked if she could go play. She was only four years old, far too young to understand the magnitude of the news her aunt had just delivered. Back at Katrina and Patricia's father's residence, their immediate family congregated. Katrina came right out and said it, addressing the elephant in the room. And it wasn't long before a collective suspicion developed among close family members that Jason may have somehow been involved in Christina's death. Eventually, the family decided that they needed to follow up with police, but everything was happening so fast. Funeral arrangements had to be made and flowers had to be ordered. But at Christina's wake, Patricia spoke with Jason for the first time since the very morning they took her sister away. I actually didn't talk to him until the funeral home. Everybody was leaving and he cornered me in like the vestibule area. And he said, well, like, you're going to have to talk to me sometime. And he forced me to hug him. That was pretty much the only contact I had with him. Jason Harris never reached out or offered any sort of condolences to the rest of the family. He remained stoic and went on with his life as if nothing ever happened. 
Katrina eventually went to the police, pleading with authorities to take another look, and at the very least, to question Jason Harris. But surprisingly, they never did. When the autopsy report came back nearly a month later that October, that's when Christina's family knew for certain that her death was no accident at all. Upon receiving the official toxicology report, it had been concluded that Christina Thompson Harris's death was ruled an accidental overdose. The only problem was, Christina never used drugs. And when the family heard that her death came by way of heroin toxicity, Katrina was the first to stand up and voice that this was simply unfeasible. I said, absolutely not. There's no way that she would ever, none. To the point of even at the dentist, she wouldn't have laughing gas because she didn't like the way it made her feel. Davison PD never officially closed the case. It was technically still open, but no active investigation was occurring. On top of that, the medical examiner was never informed by authorities that this case was still, in fact, open. They showed my mom the autopsy that said heroin toxicity and that it was ruled accidental. They did not tell the medical examiner that they were investigating anything. Otherwise, the medical examiner would not have allowed it to be ruled that. Christina's cause of death should have been listed as pending. And by this point, Jason Harris still had not been questioned once. And to the family's knowledge, no new suspects or leads were explored. With one red flag arising after the next, Christina's family knew something had to be done if they were ever going to receive justice. And it soon became abundantly clear that that assistance wouldn't be coming from law enforcement. The city of Davison hadn't dealt with a homicide in well over 50 years, and the long-term chief of police had recently retired before Christina's passing. The interim chief even disabled his own detective's phone because of the constant calls coming in from the girls' mother. If they wanted to contact the detective assigned the case, they now had no choice but to visit the police station in person to see if either the chief or detective were available. Katrina and Patricia knew at that point they were on their own and that they were going to have to get creative. She was a major producer of breast milk, like filled a freezer. She would not even take an aspirin for a headache because she knew that would end up in the milk. She was that much aware. At the time of her death, Christina had been consistently breastfeeding her four-month-old daughter, so much so that she had produced and frozen a large quantity of breast milk. While Katrina was feeding her niece from one of these bottles, it dawned on her that this was going to be a crucial part of their independent investigation. Police had already been made aware that this potential evidence existed, but showed no interest in collecting or analyzing it. Christina's family insisted that they test the milk for drug toxicity in order to rule the overdose hypothesis out, but nothing was ever done. So they kept the contents of the breast milk on ice, quite literally as they began building a case of their own, with every single family member playing their part. My mom ended up working with someone who used to work at Sprint, and he was aware of how to clone a phone. So while I had the cell phone for the funeral pictures, I gave it to my mom, she brought it to work, and they had the phone cloned so that we had all of the text messages, not just the Facebook stuff. They began stockpiling screenshots, text messages, and any and everything that might be useful in the future. Meanwhile, just two weeks after Christina's death, the local woman Jason had allegedly been having a sexual relationship with during his marriage moved into the home. Not long after, another digital footprint was created when Jason's new relationship status became Facebook official. Neighbors also recalled very rarely seeing Jason's truck outside of the residence prior to Christina's death. For the most part, it seemed, he was never home. But immediately after his wife passed away, Jason's truck seemed to never leave the driveway. He was frequently seen out and about, apparently enjoying himself around the property. 
All the while, Christina's family was forced to interact with Jason Harris on a regular basis as he maintained full custody of the two girls. We saw him every weekend in order to see the girls. We went to soccer games where he was coaching the girls. We paid for birthday parties. We were maintaining a relationship with him and he had no idea that we are also obtaining all of this information because we know he did this. They had to intermingle with this man, but the family tactfully kept in good graces for a reason. They could never let on that they were suspicious of Jason, let alone that they'd been thoroughly digging up any dirt they could find and carefully filing it away. If Jason still had their trust, he would eventually become too comfortable and slip up, and slipping up is exactly what he would eventually do. I would say the most pinnacle didn't actually happen until later on when he was dumb enough to let my dad fix his computer. Jason had actually said, I can't get my computer to turn on. Can you take a look at it? And so my dad did what my dad does, and but he copied the hard drive and ended up finding pictures of Jason um, actually holding drug paraphernalia with drugs in front of him. Jason Harris brazenly, or perhaps idiotically, asked Christina's father, a software engineer, to repair his laptop. He located images of Jason holding a straw with a white powdered substance, pictured on the table in front of him. Katrina then spoke with some mutual friends following this discovery, and she learned that Jason had in fact been hiding a drug abuse problem of his own, something that, according to friends, was a habit he'd developed shortly before Christina died. It was also revealed that Jason had lost his job, just months after his wife passed away. Apparently, he'd failed multiple drug tests, turning up positive for crystal methamphetamine. More and more pieces to this puzzle were slowly beginning to fit. On another occasion, with Jason's permission, Katrina asked to visit his home while he was at work to get clothes for Callie Ann, as she'd been watching her that day. While there, she carefully rummaged through the entire residence, and what she found was perhaps the most damning yet. In a notebook, there was a handwritten itinerary and a receipt for a plane ticket to Providence, Rhode Island. It appeared as if Jason were actually planning to meet his words-with-friend love interest in person. Katrina also discovered a deposit slip for a $100,000 life insurance policy, which had been set up through Christina's employer. When Katrina made her way down to the basement, there she unearthed a box of paraphernalia, tinfoil, and cut-up straws, all of it presumably used to smoke and or ingest hard drugs. She made sure to take photographs of everything. Up to this point, their Freedom of Information Act requests and virtually any evidence they tried to obtain from police was a fruitless endeavor. The family was denied each time. The reason being that the investigation after all of these years was still open. The family would only be able to receive these records if the case in question were closed. So instead they came up with another plan. They decided to file a civil lawsuit against Jason Harris for the wrongful death of his wife Christina. No one had ever spoken to him. We had evidence, we knew there was more evidence, but we couldn't get it because we were not law enforcement. But we could get it if we had a civil case. What we did is we were the ones taking the information we already had, plus getting the depositions done on my parents' dime. They paid for all of it. Because it's not just hearsay, it's not just somebody speaking. We actually hired the transcriptionist. We went above and beyond that step. The wrongful death suit was another calculated strategy formulated by Christina's family. But that also meant no more retirement fund for their mother and father. But none of that mattered. They were now all in, paying out of pocket. It took them a long time to find an attorney who was even willing to take on this venture. If it didn't work, the case might remain open indefinitely, and Christina may never receive the justice they believed she so desperately deserved. This was a tactful last-ditch effort to push law enforcement into taking another look. 
evidence previously held by the courts would be presented, as well as all of Katrina and Patricia's independent findings. But above all, Jason Harris would finally be legally bound to questioning during a deposition. He had no idea the family had been building a case against him for years and was inevitably caught off guard with no time to prepare. He'd slipped up before, but they needed him to do it again, only this time while under oath and while being recorded on video. September 27, 2017. The civil lawsuit had been officially filed just days before the Michigan State three-year statute of limitations. It would still take some time dragging through the courts, but they had filed just in time. And almost exactly one year later, Jason Harris would finally speak and was forced to answer some very difficult questions on September 20, 2018. Thanks to Christina's family, we have acquired that raw deposition audio, and the difficult questions began around Harris's alleged extramarital affairs. When did you begin having a romantic relationship with Miss Miller? Romantic, all right. Well, I'll leave it less vague. When did you first have sex with Miss Miller? End of October, early November. Of 2014? Yes. When did she move into um, the house with you? Uh, right before Halloween, so two or three days before Halloween of 2014. So the, the same month as the funeral for Christina Harris? Yeah. The prosecutor then asks Harris about his online relationship with a woman from Providence, Rhode Island. Her name has been redacted here for privacy reasons. How did you meet, though? I mean, I know that maybe you've never met in person, is that what you're saying? Right. Playing words with friends. Playing what with friends? Words with friends. Words with friends? Yes, it's a game. And it's an app through your phone online, yeah. Okay. And it's like what crossword is Scrabble. Okay, all right. How did the relationship become more than a simple friendship? It never has went anywhere. It's just talk. Um, Do you send sexual messages to other friends? No. Okay. But you've uh, texted with this woman? you spoken yes. on the phone with her? Yes. And um, you sent sexual messages to her? Yes. You disclosed this at some point to your wife? Yes. When did you disclose it to Kristen? As soon as she asked about him. When she asked you? what the number was and I told her. Okay. This is a photograph that appears to have been taken with a cell phone. There's handwriting on this sheet of paper that says itinerary number and a ticket number for a trip to looks like Providence, uh, Rhode Island. Prior to um, your wife's death, had you talked with her about um, the possibility of divorcing your wife? I think it came up as an option for the whole theory of living in a perfect world. What do you mean by that? If we met, what would we do? How would we go about future life. Up until this point in the interview, Harris looks relatively comfortable in his demeanor, but his body language immediately shifts when he's asked a flurry of questions he seemingly had no idea the prosecutor had any knowledge of. Do you know an individual by the name of Zachariah Shustak? Yes. How do you know him? From United Plastics. Do you ever request that Mr. Shustak um, kill your wife? No. And if he said that you did, he's either lying or mistaken? No, he'd be lying. Mr. Shustock, as referenced by the attorney, was a former co-worker of Jason Harris's. During Katrina and Patricia's private investigation, they learned that Harris had allegedly asked the man to kill his wife. The two sisters also gained information that Harris had asked upwards of five to six additional co-workers of a similar inquiry, 
It also tried to purchase tasteless and odorless illicit drugs. What happened next was one of the bombshells that would inevitably blow this case wide open. The following information was previously unknown to this point, until Harris himself willingly offered it up during his deposition. Do you recall having a conversation specifically with Dave Groshon about pills that Christina could take that would make her sleep? The only conversation about pills was I asked if the heroin come in a pill form. Even while his attorney is present, Harris continues to divulge a bit more than he should with each consecutive question. The prosecutor then begins asking about the night before Christina died. What time did you go to bed? I don't know. What time do you usually go to bed? I, I don't know. I don't have a, a bedtime. Um, did you notice anything out of the ordinary? Other than her falling asleep when pumping, she got hungry. She had I made her up a bowl of cereal. That's what she asked for. I know when she was sitting in a chair and dropped the spoon. Jason Harris has just revealed that the night before his wife was found deceased in their home, she wasn't feeling well and that he made her a bowl of cereal. This was the first indication that Harris did actually have an opportunity to potentially administer a toxic dose of heroin to his wife's food. This, of course, was not enough proof but did offer up a plausible explanation, nonetheless. She fell asleep while she was eating this Not enough. Cereal? So, I mean, after she dropped the spoon, I told her, I said, you know, why don't you just go to bed? Something like that. Because I read a bedtime story to Haley while she was pumping, and I, she was nodding in and off there. I mean, I, I don't remember what time any of this was. Did she go physically to your bedroom to sleep that night? Yeah. Did you sleep beside her that night? Yep. Did you hear anything out of the ordinary? No. Okay. Did you consume any alcohol that night? No. Did you consume any other drugs that night? No. You heard nothing out of the ordinary at all? No. But definitely, when you were reading to Haley, Haley goes to bed around 8, right? Your wife was already nodding off. You have to say yesterday. Yes. The prosecutor continues to pry into the specifics of these vitally important last moments of Christina's life. If Jason Harris did lace her cereal with a lethal dose of heroin, he confesses here that he began casually reading their daughter a bedtime story immediately after serving her the food. Additionally, he would go on to sleep in the same bed as his wife that night more than likely well aware and potentially hoping that she would be dead in a matter of hours by morning. And when you left, she was alive? Correct. You had nothing to do with your wife's death, right? Correct. How did you feel after your wife died? It's kind of a strange question, but uh, a little confused, very hurt. Um, it was devastating. It was, it was rough. It was very sad. Did you cry around others? I'm not one to try to do that, but yes, it has taken place. Who did you cry around? That the day, September 29th, would have been anybody that would have been around would have seen it. Through four hours of questioning, Jason Harris displayed the same lack of emotion he had since day one. He claims a sense of sorrow, yet the cadence of his voice suggests otherwise. His true feelings were irrelevant at this point. What mattered now was that Harris was on record, providing incriminating statements in regards to his potential involvement, bringing Christina's family one step closer to the truth. The case would then be presented to a review board a panel of three who would decide if the family would be awarded any damages. But that was never the goal in this case. An unknown settlement was eventually reached, but Christina's family never received a dime. The real value was in their newly documented information. 
So then our attorney presented the whole civil case, all of the documentation and everything and went back to the prosecutor's office with everything and said, before this becomes public record, are you sure you don't want to review this one more time? To avoid a media frenzy or public uproar, and potentially running the risk of somehow botching this investigation any more than they already had, the courts complied. And after far too long, in August of 2019, Jason Harris was finally arrested after the medical examiner changed Christina's cause of death to homicide. He was charged with three felonies, including first-degree murder, solicitation of murder, and the delivery of a controlled substance resulting in death. He was subsequently held without bond, and a criminal trial date would soon be set. This once cold case, thought accidental death, was now garnering a renewed following in the media, after Michigan State Police and the prosecutor's office held a joint press conference to announce the stunning developments and the arrest in this case. Jason Harris murdered his wife. We believe he put heroin into her cereal and milk the night that she died after getting it from someone, thinking it would be tasteless and odorless, much like he had asked his co-workers multiple times. This is the first time in the history of the state of Michigan that a prosecutor has asked the crime lab to test breast milk. I want to thank Christina's mom and dad for their patience. I know this has been a long time coming. Years it was believed a woman died of an accidental drug overdose, but today her husband is going before a judge accused of killing her. Jason Harris will be in a Genesee County courtroom in a matter of hours after prosecutors say they believe he spiked his wife's cereal. The case was rightfully handed over to the Michigan State Police, and proceedings would commence in November of 2021. Nearly all of the many years' worth of independent detective work done by Christina's family had finally been entered into evidence. It was revealed in court that the morning of Christina's death, Jason Harris had called a neighbor asking her to check on his wife. This was an extremely odd and random occurrence, according to the witness. Once she arrived, the neighbor found Christina unresponsive and foaming at the mouth in the couple's master bedroom. Christina's body was also noticeably stiff, so the neighbor called another neighbor nearby a nurse named Melissa Bishop. Bishop came over to the Harris residence to assess Christina's condition, and upon arriving, she immediately recognized that Christina was already dead. In the days that followed, Jason had reportedly stated that Christina had been sick, coughing, and generally not feeling well in the days immediately preceding her death, claiming to police that she had also recently been seen for asthma. But Christina's mother disputed this claim, testifying that she had seen her daughter just hours before she had died. She had shown no signs of being ill. According to a police petition, Jason had also allegedly told one of his neighbors the very morning that her body was discovered, that Christina had, quote, died from eating drugs, a statement he made long before the coroner or medical examiner conducted any sort of formal death investigation. The insurmountable evidence against Jason Harris continued to pile up. He had also confessed to several co-workers, stating, quote, I wish Christina was dead. Through various sources, it was alleged that Harris offered one man $5,000 to kill his wife. It had also been suggested that sometime leading up to Christina's death, a man was caught canvassing the Harris residence and allegedly had a firearm on his person. This man was never identified and the claim could ultimately never be substantiated. Christina's frozen breast milk was finally tested, and like her sisters knew all along, there were no signs of any illicit substances present whatsoever. Additional witnesses took the stand for the prosecution, including Harris's own brother, who had reported his suspicions to Davison police just days after Christina's death, explaining that his brother Jason had spoken about, quote, getting rid of Christina in the past. But wouldn't you know it, he never heard back from police. You're not a betting man, but if you are for this purpose, yep. you had $1,000, how much would you bet that your brother, Jason Harris, killed his wife? 
I would bet $1,000. In a shocking police petition, it was also eventually revealed that Jason's own sister contacted police after Christina's death, expressing her grave concern that her brother Jason may have had something to do with it, explaining that he had shared with her an actual plan for how to one day get away with her murder. He said he would call a neighbor's house, have them check on her, and that neighbor would find her body. They would then call the cops and he would act shocked. Mr. Shustock, the ex-co-worker Harris allegedly tried to hire to murder his wife, also testified in court. He was just saying that Christina wasn't wanting to go back to work um, and that she was just laying around the house, not doing anything, and he was just getting tired of it. There was a situation where he had asked me if I would kill her for him. But the true motive was revealed when an acquaintance of Jason Harris took the stand. One evening when out to eat with this friend, Jason expressed his woes of a failing marriage. When the individual proposed the simpler solution of filing for divorce, Harris replied by saying this was not an option, as he did not want to pay child support. His daughter Mia from a previous relationship had finally turned 18, and those child support payments had just ended. Once and for all, Harris was going to be free from this financial burden, and he refused to go through that same process over again with Christina and their children. This, on top of the speedy cash-out from her life insurance policy, solidified to the jury that financial security was a clear motivating factor in Christina Thompson Harris's murder. The defense harped on the fact that there was no physical proof tying Jason Harris to the purchase of heroin, or that he had used drugs himself at all. However, due to the several first-hand accounts provided by former co-workers who had previous criminal drug charges on their records, it's reasonable to believe that heroin wouldn't have been too hard for Jason to find. With the amount of people who eventually came forward claiming Harris was looking for an odorless, tasteless substance to render his wife unconscious, let's just say things weren't looking too good for Jason never mind admitting to asking about heroin capsules specifically during his deposition. On November 17, 2021, Jason Harris was convicted of first-degree murder, delivery of a controlled substance causing death, and solicitation of murder by a jury of his peers. At his eventual sentencing hearing on December 10th, Harris was given the opportunity to address the court aloud. Somehow, he continued to proclaim his innocence. I do stand behind my innocence behind this. I'm going to hope for appeals. No apologies, no remorse. But the judge wouldn't shy away from letting Harris know exactly how he felt about him and his character in regards to this horrific and heinous murder. The jury didn't believe your lies, and now we're finally exposed for the selfish, murdering, lying monster that you are. What you wanted, all the stuff, you sacrificed your daughters. Right? You took away their mother. That's the first thing you did. You took away their mother. Best way I can say it is you are a murderer and you are a liar. 44-year-old Jason Harris was handed down a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole for the murder of his wife, Christina. While the Michigan State Police and prosecution team were widely applauded after securing Jason Harris's conviction, surely we cannot forget about the efforts of Christina's sisters, Patricia and Katrina. But they weren't looking for applause or recognition and had no interest in praise or media attention. They simply wanted to do what their older sister, Christina, would have done for them. And that's continue the fight. Had they not, over the course of six long years, Murderer Jason Harris, more than likely, would still be a free man. When Christina Harris was killed, the only photos taken were by the medical examiner's office. No perimeter was ever contained and no evidence gathered. And perhaps most curious, no one was ever questioned about her death. That's because there was no crime scene in the eyes of law enforcement. 
Christina's family believes that after realizing those mistakes had been made within the crucial first 48 hours of this murder, police were adamant to dive back in, hoping this would one day go away. But Katrina and Patricia refused to let that happen, and so they went to work for their sister Christina when it seemed no one else would. While this is an incredible story of perseverance and overcoming the odds, in addition to the powers that be, it's also discouraging that it ever had to come to this in the first place. What happened is it was ignored and we weren't going to just let Christy die and have him be responsible for her girls and just walk away. They wanted us to just go away because that would have been easier. If it were me, Christy would be right there doing it. I am a total advocate for speak your mind. Don't let the sense of authority make you feel like they're doing something. I have nothing against police. I was raised that you need to respect them. They're heroes, you know, you honor them. They go above and beyond. But then at 30 plus, I end up realizing they're just people still who are in jobs that might not need to be in those jobs. And you shouldn't let their authority stop you from getting what needs to be done done. Christina's sisters say that their job is still not finished. Though Harris is locked up for good, they are still fighting over full guardianship of Christina's two daughters. They told us that if there's any positive takeaway from Christina's tragic and senseless murder, it's that her story can hopefully inspire other women who find themselves in a compromising or tumultuous relationship to find the strength to cut all ties before it's too late. I just, I definitely wouldn't want anyone else to have to go through this. And also for any women who are in question, maybe don't wait, just go. Just go. Not be afraid to stick up for the people you love. I mean, you know them better than anyone else. So if you're like Christy, where she no longer had a voice, we had to be her voice. And it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the four of us. 